15 years later, what is the terrorist threat to our city? Are we meeting it? And are we making sure civil liberties don't become collateral damage? So we're going to dig into the topics you just mentioned uh, when we're joined by NYPD Deputy Commissioner for Intelligence and Counterterrorism, John Miller. Uh, He's basically been the one uh, tasked at the NYPD over the last several years, first by Commissioner Bill Bratton, now Commissioner James O'Neill with uh, counterterrorism efforts. And obviously, we wanted to bring him on today on the 18th anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks to discuss his work Mm -hmm. and uh, how the NYPD has approached counterterrorism, intelligence gathering, as you indicated always trying to figure out the balance between public safety, investigation, surveillance, privacy, individual rights, um, and all the things that, that go into that. Certainly, yes. And obviously, to talk about the you know, the way the NYPD approaches that and the fact that the landscape has changed in, in many ways from what we knew it was on September 11th of 18 years ago, different groups, Um, different types of uh, terrorism that's more in the spotlight. And that might be merely the whims of of the media, uh, kind of the flavor of the month. Um, Miller, someone you can talk to about what kind of the underlying currents are. So that's something we'll be interested in digging into him. And and he's had a very interesting career. Maybe we'll give him a couple minutes to talk about that. He's, you know, been on our side of of the work a bit as a journalist and also very involved in um, policing efforts and and clearly a close... um, you know, ally and colleague of, of Bill Bratton, the former NYPD commissioner. You also work with him in Los Angeles. So um, we'll be bringing John Miller on to talk about his work leading the NYPD's counterterrorism efforts. Um, he's got a variety of uh, potential and planned attacks that the NYPD and its partners, including the FBI, have thwarted. Uh, some others that have gone to fruition over the last few years. We'll ask him about what's made the difference in some of those and a variety of other things. So let's bring on our guest who's uh, here in studio. Thanks for joining us. This is NYPD Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism, John Miller. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So why don't we, um, before we hear about, you know, your sort of more recent work, um, tell us where you were on September 11th, 2001. On September 11th, 2001, I was on the set of Good Morning America for ABC News covering the top story of the day, which involved a human hair that had been found in a car that had something to do with the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa from the Teamsters Union. And the idea was that new DNA technology would allow them to analyze that hair and maybe place one of the suspects at the scene of the car that they think was used to kidnap him. It's interesting that that was the lead story um, that morning on that day, which all changed halfway through the broadcast. I went on to be assistant director of the FBI, the deputy director for analysis of national intelligence, worked in two police departments. If you ask me right now what happened to the test on the hair, (laughs) I couldn't tell you because the world changed halfway through that morning. Um, Things that mattered a lot the day before just didn't matter anymore. Um, So I spent uh, the next couple of days um, in between naps just on the air with Peter Jennings um, trying to get a handle, a grasp, uh, but for us and for the viewers on what we were watching. Mm -hmm. And and your background to that point uh, to make you, you know, an expert in that uh, discussion? Um, I had covered terrorism, but mostly in New York. Um, I had uh, then done some international terrorism work. I'd gone to Afghanistan, interviewed Osama bin Laden, been in al-Qaeda's camps, 
um, covered the first bombing of the World Trade Center, uh, the trials. I'd also been in and out of the New York City Police Department during a time when um, some of those arrests in the first World Trade Center bombing were being made, and it was starting to open the door to kind of what happened to the Mujahideen after the defeat of the Russians in Afghanistan, where did they go, what was their new war, um, and how that was, was starting to, um, to grow behind the scenes. Going back to your interview with bin Laden, because obviously that's, uh, uh, that's a big get in, uh, in historical terms, certainly. When you look back at that, especially as events evolved from September 11th of 18 years ago, what was his importance to that movement how much was he a figurehead versus uh, an, an operational driver? And did you have a sense of that in in '98, or uh, was that uh, was his impact not yet not yet clear? His impact wasn't clear, but it's so interesting that you put the question that way because that was the framing of the question we were trying to answer in doing that story, which is, what did he bring to the movement? Um, he brought charisma and stories from the battlefield with the Russians, but. Remember, he was the Saudi equivalent of a Rockefeller. He came from a family. There was $250 million in assets, you know, in, in and around his name and billions within his family. So the question, um, which was for us, it was a journalistic question. Uh, in another job, I would have called it an intelligence gap was, what was he? Was he an operational commander? Was he running the organization? Was he an inspirational leader or just a financier? Um, and I wanted to go and ask him that because the question that I had, this is pre-9-11, was did he pay for and set up the bombing of the World Trade Center, which killed six people and injured over a 1,000, um, but it was our first experience with real international terrorism in New York. Talk a little bit about, as you say, the world changed. Um, in terms of the work of intelligence gathering and counterterrorism work. How did the world change after September 11, 2001? Well, there were two worlds. You know, there was the world on September 10th and there was the world on September 12th. And um, the first thing that happened was rescue and recovery and then reaction. The second thing that happened was a really important self-examination by the 9-11 Commission, by the Congress, by... Um, by the WMD Commission, and their conclusions were not far apart, which is, yes, it was a failure of imagination. Uh, they could think of something to do um, that was fairly low-tech, relatively low-cost, and extraordinarily high-impact um, that we didn't think of at the same time. But the more important question, and the one that had kind of the bureaucratic bloodletting attached to it was, how did you miss this? All of the pieces were there. They weren't all together. Each agency had a few of them, but why couldn't they put them together? Where was the collaboration? So I look at today with, you know, before 9-11, we had a dozen detectives on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Today we have over 100. Um, it was about what was your commitment to the effort? What was your estimate of the threat? And how are you sharing information? Um, and we're sharing information, at least in New York City, seamlessly um, across uh, the government agencies. When I was at the Director of National Intelligence, part of my charge there um, was to um, break through the barriers of collaboration, which were even, even then starting to grow back because agencies uh, naturally collaborate, but they also naturally compete for resources, for credit, for so on. And we had to... We had to keep hammering that down. 
as you share that information, as you say, seamlessly, are there too many uh, agencies in the mix? I mean, sometimes, you know, I look at the different groups represented at the various press conferences, you know, that we see, and it seems like so many different tentacles. And I wonder if, if you have any struggles with the, you know, efficiency therein. I don't think so. In the New York JTTF, which is the first one, I mean, they invented the JTTF in New York, and not after 9-11. They did it in 1980. Um, In the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force, which was first made up of the FBI and the NYPD, there are now 59 agencies. And that means Customs and Border Protection and Immigrations and Custom, but also Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, Secret Service, uh, fish and wildlife. I mean, if there's a federal agency that has a, a badge or a gun in New York, they're on there. And each delivers something different. That is where you can look out in the room and say, I need X. Who can reach that? But at the same time, when you walk through the JTTF offices, uh, you can't tell what agency anybody's with because it's one team, one fight. So looking at it as a whole, when you evaluate preparedness here, um, preparedness to detect threats, to respond to them, in the worst case scenario, to respond to an emergency uh, when it unfolds. How do you assess the current level of, of readiness in the city? So we look at that in kind of six ways in the NYPD. First, on the intelligence bureau side, their job is to gather intelligence. That's information where are the threat's coming from. Do analysis figure out what does that information mean, and then do interdiction, which is can we stop the event before it happens, not after. When you get to the Counterterrorism Bureau side, uh, the three things they're looking at is, let's just assume the Intelligence Bureau fails, which we generally don't. Um, But counterterrorism, we look at it there saying, are we prepared for this? Have we trained for it? Are we ready to respond to it if it happens? And I think between those, those six things, which is find out what's going on, figure out what it means, try and stop it, um, be able to, do we have the right personnel, do we have the right equipment, do we have a plan to respond if it happens, we're about as ready as any place in the world. And I say that because in New York City, um, and under this mayor, we got 500 more people for this job, um, we have approximately 2,000 people in intelligence and counterterrorism who do this full time every day. There's not another police department in the United States that has devoted that kind of, that kind of money um, or, or the, that number of people uh, to protecting a city. And it's because 9-11 happened here. Um, we understand what the cost is. Put a little, you know, sort of more meat on the bone there in terms of what those 2,000 people are doing. What, what are some of the concrete sort of tasks that, that folks in your bureaus are are doing every day? So um, on the intelligence side, uh, you have the people who are looking to detect and, and stop the plots. So as an example, um, we have stopped in excess of 30, 35 plots since 9-11 targeting New York City or emanating from New York City. Um, that's a lot of attacks that didn't happen. To put it in a tighter perspective, If you go back the Friday before last, um, you'll see that uh, an individual named uh, Awais Chudhari in Queens had found his way into one of the darkest corners of the Internet, into an ISIS chat room, 
um, had discussed doing a knife attack in New York City. His target was going to be a park in Queens by the water where people go practice yoga, ride their bikes, go jogging, um, bring their strollers, have their boats. Um, he was going to stab as many people as possible, wear a mask so as not to be recognized, uh, videotape it on his phone to, to give propaganda. And he was in the process of picking up that knife from a drop, a drop box where it was being delivered, a tactical military knife, um, when he was arrested. That plot spun up very quickly and metastasized over literally the course of a week um, from someone who was a guy who lived at home with his mom and his dad and his three sisters and went to school. That's one version. Another version is... And you're able to, to, to thwart that, to detect that based on intelligence gathering from his internet activity? We're able to thwart that based on being in the places um, where groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda are encouraging people to attack um, and recruiting people to attack or through, it depends on the case, through sources of information where they say this person is planning to attack. If you look at the case of uh, Ashakul Alam, uh, which is uh, still, uh, still pending trial, here's an individual who decided he wanted to use um, guns to shoot up the red steps in Times Square. That's a case that unfolded uh, over many, many months, not over the course of a week. But at any one time in the NYPD, between the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the FBI and the NYPD, the Intelligence Bureau, there are three or four or sometimes five plots unfolding in various stages um, on average. And I don't think there are many other places like that. I want to ask you a question about the evolution of the threat in a second, but first I want to bring in, we have a, a phone call. Caller, welcome to Max and Murphy. Go ahead with your question for the Deputy Commissioner. Thanks very much. Uh, this is Russell Pinsley, son of Stan, John. I think you worked with my father at Channel 5 Metro Media. I did. Stan, one of the great researchers and investigative reporters in the history of digging. Yeah, well, I, I try and dig a lot, too, myself. And uh, I have two questions. What was the rush to dispose of all the materials since it took 10 years to build something anyway? And if, did this rush contribute to all the diseases? And do you think that Giuliani, by strutting around without any protective gear or even a mask, really was part of the problem. My son attended school down there on north side of the building. They loaded toxic debris onto the barges. And I just wanted to know if you had any answers. But before that, you know, John, I want to ask you a personal Did you ever apologize for leaking the status of a lesbian rape victim? And I'd like to know. Thanks very much. Bye. So uh, second question first. Uh, yes, I did, uh, both privately to her um, and publicly um, after and I gave her uh, through her attorney the uh, the uh, option of of publishing the apology I gave to her. Uh, that was a mistake from a long time ago. Um, there's a long record that goes with that, um, and so the answer to that is yes. Uh, that was an off the record briefing to reporters, one of whom uh, did not honor that. It was based on the investigation and what detectives thought at the time, which turned out to be factually incorrect and did that victim a disservice did you want to comment on the first part i mean the, i know that's the, not necessarily the, your yeah, purview so but on the first part i think um i think you know i don't know if you can blame giuliani for running around without a mask um i think you can blame the size and scope of an incident that nobody was prepared for a um b 
bad advice we got from none other than, you know, the Secretary of Health and Human Services who said we tested the air and it was fine, which also turned out to be incorrect, certainly in the long term. And the idea that, you know, you had 2,977 people killed on a single day um, on September 11th, including 27, 23 NYPD officers, uh, 37 Port Authority officers. But think about today, which is, we say 3,000 people. Um, since that time, 241 New York City police officers, not counting firefighters and Port Authority cops, 241 police officers have died from um, what most of the experts are concluding are 9-11 related cancer. That means that the the toll from this terrorist attack, not just the instant murders that, that happened that day, but the slow motion murders that are continuing are still being felt. It's a it's a rolling tragedy. We have a stack of phone calls. Let's try to get to a couple more. Hi, you're on Max and Murphy. We have time for one quick question for the deputy commissioner. Go ahead. Oh, sure. Uh, so, so the question about this latest case uh, you mentioned about the tactical knife, um, uh, it, was there a confidential informant uh, in that case that maybe provided some encouragement or any other thing? And what is the percentage of cases that you mentioned that had a confidential informant versus not? Thank you. you. you know, the Thanks cases, for the call. The cases have a mix. Um, in that case, there was no confidential informant. Um, in the other case I referenced, uh, there was an undercover officer. Um, but we have very strict rules and guidelines um, about providing encouragement and what the role of an informant can be, what the role of an undercover can be. And, you know, it's not left to us. It's gone over by prosecutors, not when they get the case, but during the investigation about where are those lines drawn? How do they comport with the federal system? And I have to say this, and I don't mean to sound flip about it. But the argument of entrapment has um, succeeded 100% of the time on the courthouse steps with the defense lawyer making that claim. It has succeeded almost never when you get into court, you hear the testimony, you play the videotapes, you play the audio tapes, and you see the role of the defendant. And that's because we're careful about how we do these things. We're not interested in entrapping people. We're interested in stopping people from hurting people. Just to talk about the threat, you, you mentioned obviously this case in Queens, the guy with the, the knives. I'm not sure if he's someone you would say, the term of art I think is self-radicalized, but the, the threat on September 11th was seen as large international groups concocting large spectacular plots. And the focus now seems to be on maybe individuals concocting smaller, very, very low-tech plots. Does that, does that depict the change in, in the actual threats facing the city, or is that just what we're paying attention to in the media and popularly? No, that depicts the change. I mean, what you used to have was um, terrorist bureaucracies, al-Qaeda, ISIS, that had chains of command and um, financing that would send out groups to do directed attacks. At the same time, they ran a propaganda piece encouraging the so-called lone wolf. As you've seen, the weakening of al-Qaeda um, and the destruction of ISIS's command structure and the ability to do complex external operations, what they've done in turn is to turn up the propaganda to try and do the mass marketing of terrorism and rely as best they could almost totally on the so-called lone wolves. What you've also seen is an adaptation of these 
tactics and procedures by completely unrelated groups, um, including virulent right-wing groups that are um, uh, doing violence in the name of white supremacy or involuntary celibates or neo-Nazism, where they're using the same types of propaganda, same types of video, same types of instruction, same types of encryption. So we really have our hands full when you look at the idea that we arrested multiple people in terrorist plots just in the, in the past couple of months that are emanating from overseas. But at the same time, we've gone literally through a weekend, a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You consider the, the Garlic Festival in Gilroy, California, then El Paso, then Dayton, then a Walmart with a workplace violence where we've had dozens of people, literally, up to 40 people killed you know, in the course of a series of shootings in a short time that, um, that have nothing to do with that, but are adapting the same, the same message strategies. Is there a way that you've shifted resources because of those, those shifting threats? I mean, how do you, how do you discern, uh, you know, a rise in white nationalism and, uh, you know, this type of threat versus the more, you know, traditional uh, foreign, you know, quote unquote, foreign terrorist threat, as we, of course, saw on September 11th? Well, I think the answer to that is yes and no, meaning I haven't gotten more resources Um, but we have shifted resources to the point that we have a number more people than we had before um, paying attention to that end of the threat business. I'm talking about white supremacist, neo-Nazi groups. We don't have a lot of that in New York, but we understand that as the media capital of the world, and we learned this in the James Harris Jackson case where an individual from Baltimore came up here uh, with the intent of killing people of color to start a race war, it's not that Baltimore doesn't have a population where you couldn't find people of color, but he came up here because it was New York, mm-hmm. and he wanted, he wanted the media attention. So we're very cognizant of that. The, the key to it, though, is not to get caught up on the how many people are working on this versus how many people are working on that. What we do is we have all the teams searching for the same thing. Uh, cause, um, cause aside, who's out there talking about looking to kill people? Who's out there encouraging it? Who are they reaching? Are we on top of this? So if somebody says, put me in, coach, we're right there to stop it. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're speaking with NYPD Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism, John Miller. We have a few more calls to get to. Let's see if we can get to at least one of them. Hi, I'm Max and Murphy. What's your question? I have two quick questions. One, can the technique that John Miller is discussing right now of uh, monitoring social media, disaffected individuals who are uh, speaking about violence uh, as far as the jihadi type used against the um, potential white nationalists or Aryan stormtrooper type of uh, media and approach them and, you know, place an informant to encourage them to commit or prevent, actually. Let's just pause right there and take that take that question. Same same tactics. So uh, let's look at what we know. Um, You know, in the Tree of Life synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh, that individual was a regular feature in a message board um, that was a favorite among white supremacists. Um, And, you know, his speech was protected speech, uh, unpopular, but protected up until the moment he said, I'm going in. Uh, But he didn't say where he was going or what he was going to do. 
if you look at the El Paso attack, here's another, another individual who was a regular feature in a different message board where he posted an entire manifesto. And had you gotten a subpoena, gotten his identity, gotten an emergency disclosure so you could get it before the subpoena and covered it with paper later and then gone out looking for him, part of the challenge was he drove 10 hours away from his home to do the attack. So, so we're looking in the right places, uh, but it's still a challenge. But you can monitor protected speech, right? You can keep tabs on th- thing, things that are known that, to lead to That's the whole thing, Max, unprotected- is, 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 to, is to be in the places where they're encouraging the things that are not constitutionally protected, like violence. Um, and then to be looking for the people who are who are planning to do it, I have to say this though, and and we have a an op-ed in in the Times today uh, that you can find online. Uh, we don't have the suite of laws that we have against Al Qaeda and ISIS. You know, if it's Al Qaeda or ISIS, it's a designated foreign terrorist group. If you send them socks and boots, that's a federal crime. You'll go away for fifteen years. Um, but if you look at the Charlottesville attack and compare it to the West Side Highway, Saifula Saipov runs over 12 people and kills eight in New York City. Um, the individual in, in Charlottesville, uh, Mr. Fields, rams a crowd of people and kills Heather Heyer. Um, one is charged with terrorism and the other is charged with um, a state murder charge and a series of hate crimes. Because hate. of the inspiration, because of where the... Right. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, there should be domestic terrorism laws. They exist, but they require that you have to use a bomb or a weapon of mass destruction or a chemical weapon. Um, there's a lot of qualifiers to it. And when you're living in a country where every 20 minutes somebody runs out with an AR-15 and wants to kill 20 people with a gun or run them down with a car, and it's for an array of causes that are politically driven... Um, you have to take that domestic terrorism law and rethink it. Let's go to our next call. Hi, you're on Max and Murphy. What's your quick question? Hi, my name's Doug. I'm from Staten Island. Uh, just parenthetically, I want to say that uh, regarding uh, the uh, 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 the um, bombings uh, that we've uh, that we've had and killings uh, from uh, terrorist groups, I believe last year there was only one that was actually uh, considered. Uh, uh, an extremist uh, al-Qaeda kind type of setup, and that mostly they were domestic terrorists. And I think that the report that was done, exhaustive report that was done by uh, Congress a couple of years ago and then shelved by the Republicans who, who decried its, its existence about white terrorism and, and white nationalism, has this a lot to do with that. My question is, I would like to know, uh, if you would tell the public, what percentage of the, of the um, um, uh, uh, New York City police force has been trained by the counterterrorism force uh, of Israel. I understand they go down there in regular junkets, and their um, their methods down in Israel are quite different from the methods that we have over here. All right, good question. Uh, th- Thank you, caller. Okay, so I think the answer is we've sent executives over to Israel to study with their counterterrorism forces to talk about how do you confront things like a sudden spate of bus bombings or attacks on cafes or public places. Um, we don't have the Israelis uh, train our police officers. I don't know if the caller was actually saying that in a positive way or a negative way. We didn't quite get there. Let me but, ask yeah, about uh, some tactics that have been in the news over several years. When you look at the, um, the administration that preceded your coming uh, 
back to one police plaza. The demographics unit, the infiltration of mosques, the infiltration of some protest groups around the RNC in 2004, were there excesses by the NYPD in that era that crossed a line between security and liberty, do you think? I think to, to answer that question, you have to kind of look at the results of the deeper dives into the question. So for the Intelligence Bureau, you know, we were, lawsuits were brought um, by a number of um, civil rights advocates representing a number of Muslim groups in the city, um, both in New Jersey and in New York City. And, you know, in the case of New York City, um, we sat down with the advocates, we sat down with the lawyers, we sat down with the plaintiffs in the Hanshu Agreement, which is uh, a consent decree over over how we conduct ourselves. And that case was settled um, in a couple of important ways. One, without any admission of wrongdoing by the NYPD, because we were able to demonstrate to the point that we didn't have to make such an admission that we hadn't done anything wrong. B, with a number of changes to the Hanshu Agreement, um, and this is one of the parts I like about the settlement the most, we demonstrated that we were exceeding what the Hanshu Agreement required, and they said, well, if you're exceeding it, why don't we codify that as a best practice and put it in? So the Hanshu Agreement now reflects um, how we were doing even more than what was required by the original, and we paid no damages. So I think if you look at that case, um, once they got into the processes of how we work, read the investigative statements of what measures up to a case, saw how many people and layers that went through before it was approved, uh, I think they walked away with a higher degree of confidence, not only in how we were doing it now, uh, which I'll defend right, right here today, but a higher degree of confidence on how um, it was done before. Uh, infiltrations of mosques, uh, the use of terms like spying and surveillance, these were very charged words. If you change them to documented authorized investigations that had documents and justification behind them, uh, it became less interesting and less inflammatory. The key was the communication of sitting down with everybody. I want to ask you um, about the use of uh, facial recognition technology. What is the status of that, and do you understand the concerns that um, you know some activists and, and experts are raising around the NYPD's use? I, I certainly do understand the concerns, and there should be concerns, really serious concerns. When you kind of look at facial recognition and you say, how's this being used? Where am I being photographed? Where are those records going? Who's keeping them? Um, that's a really valid discussion in a free, open, democratic society. And the society. question's about how accurate it is in matching. Yeah, uh, that technology is always going to evolve. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't even get hung up on okay. that because the question is, what's the result? If you want to ask a different question, which is how concerned should you be about how the NYPD is using it, so let's, let's take the narrower subject. You know, what we're not doing. We're not scanning across social media and vacuuming up uh, faces from high-quality pictures. What we're not doing. We're not taking our, our over 10,000 security cameras out there. People call them surveillance cameras. They're security cameras. Nobody's watching them unless something happens. Then you rewind and say, is the incident captured here? Nobody's capturing faces from that either. Here's what we do. If you get robbed on the street and the guy hits you over the head or shoots you and flees, 
and we find a camera in the area, it could be in a bank, it could be an NYPD camera, it could be from a college, and that captures a good image of somebody's face uh, that is that is facial recognition quality, and not all of them are. We'll run that against the mugshots of criminals we have in our own files, our own records, and it'll propose one or more matches. And then a detective will go over those matches and say, what percentage matches this? What percentage matches that? Um, is this a good candidate? And then they'll do investigation beyond that. Is there a picture of that person wearing the same outfit on their Instagram page the same day as the crime? Does that person have a record for clunking people over the head and robbing them that's 14 arrests long? Nobody has ever been arrested or charged with any crime in New York City based on facial recognition. Facial recognition has provided a lead that puts them onto a series of clues that they then have to prove in court, which is called evidence. Quick, quick, quick. Yeah, go ahead. ahead, Well, just quickly on that. If a crime occurs in a crowd or something and you, you don't know who committed it, but there's six good faces that are picked up by the camera, do those identifications or those images, are they kept? Well, you, you, if, if there's a video of a crime that's occurring in a crowd and we have the tape, it's, it's kept. It's not necessarily kept for facial recognition. It's mm-hmm. evidence of the crime. You know, this discussion is upside down. We've decided to kind of, as a society, torture the police use of facial recognition because it, it kind of smells of big brother mm-hmm. and, sure. you know, big data. The fact is that single eyewitness identification, people under pressure, seeing someone they've never seen before, and then being shown a photograph or a number of photographs later, has been, and you can ask any judge about this or any defense lawyer, has been the biggest cause of innocent people going to prison over the years. And when I was a reporter, I got more than one of them out of jail by proving those identifications to be wrong. The idea that you have facial recognition based on an actual photograph, a scientific comparison, and then developing the evidence to prove it, not the other way around, um, is going to actually keep people from being wrongly charged or accused far more than the other way around. What you've just talked about relevant to facial recognition technology, the safeguards, the ways in which the NYPD intends to use it, perhaps some of the training that goes into that, this is the content of the POST Act, which is something the city council has looked at for a number of years, which would require the NYPD to talk about the kinds of technology it uses and the safeguards it would have in place as well as some other elements to that law that I'm not describing in full. The administration has, it's my understanding, opposed that law. Can you talk about why? Because sure. for what you just described to us, it seems like oversight and part of a legitimate discussion about what tools the government is, is using to police its citizens. So the, the POST Act is, is probably a sensible law that has a place in oversight. Um, But one of the problems, we just saw this in Albany with the Bail Reform Act, we saw it in the City Council with the Post Act is, I don't know how many legislators actually read these things before they pass them. Um, I know not all of them, but I I know this for certain. They certainly didn't write them, nor did their legislative aides. These acts were written by advocates who were pushing agendas and then handed to legislatures and say, here, we've drafted this law for you, just pass it. So the Post Act, as written, as it was presented to us, 
didn't say we want to go over certain technologies and consider privacy and, and so on. It said we want the NYPD to report to us every single piece of technology that records any image, any voice, any photograph, any video, what it is, how it works, what its limitations are, how it's used. If you are me and you're putting undercover officers out with terrorists, with weapons, if you are the chief of narcotics and you're putting people in dangerous rooms with armed criminals who would kill you if they thought you were a law enforcement agent and you want to describe what that equipment is, how it works, what its limitations are, what it looks like, who makes it, the manufacturer, everything, two Google searches away from them being able to find an image of where we're hiding listening devices or video recording devices. That's irresponsible. It's dangerous. And it's callous to people who put their lives on the line. So I've heard you say there's a version of the bill that we, you could see. We went over this bill mm -hmm. with the original uh, supporter of it in the council, Councilman Gorodnik, and we said, if you made these changes... This bill could work for both causes, both transparency, but not so much transparency that we would either be letting criminals get away or putting police officers or witnesses or victims in danger. Um, and they took copious notes. They couldn't have been more understanding. And they, let, they left the meeting and they submitted the same bill the same way it was written by the advocates. Jeez. I think when the advocates, t let me say this for the advocates. If I was an advocate on that side of the equation, I would write the bill the same way on the idea that we, we, we won't get everything because this will probably be negotiated. The point is the middle part fell out in that discussion. You've worked on the national level, FBI, the national directorate, and there you have congressional oversight. It's a special committee. They're sworn to secrecy. They're classified. But there are still people who can go into a room and ask difficult questions to find out exactly what's going on. There's been some discussion in recent years about the fact that like, part of the city's budget that pertains to the NYPD is shrouded in some secrecy because it pertains to intelligence and perhaps counterterrorism. There's been some discussion about whether some stuff was made secret that didn't need to be. But I, think, do you feel I think a lot of stuff was made secret that didn't need to be, and they changed that. But do you um, feel that the, there is... The controller's office. Are, are there mechanisms to kind of police the police here that are equivalent to what exists on the national level, given that the council is not as powerful relative to the executive as Congress is? Do you feel there is an actual layer of oversight? You know, I think the, the council is as powerful as it intends to be, meaning they can hold a hearing about anything. They can uh, call witnesses, including senior police officials, um, to a hearing. Uh, they can do that by subpoena or by request. Uh, we tend to show up either way with a whole team of people. Uh, so I don't think there's a lack of oversight. Beyond the council, we have an independent inspector general who has access to anything in the NYPD. Beyond the inspector general, we have five separate district attorneys who can launch any investigation into anything that's deemed untoward, and two U.S. attorneys, and they all have. I don't think we're suffering from any lack of oversight. I think what we're suffering from is a lack of collaboration when, um, when they come up with some of these ideas uh, of what would make policing better without talking to the police in great detail all the time. Um, about what the ground truth of what that would look like on the street is. Final question. We'll get you out of here. Deputy Commissioner John Miller, we appreciate the, the time here. Um, I wanted to ask this earlier, but I guess it's a good way to bring us full circle. 
has there been any evidence over time that September 11th itself is a heightened day of um, you know potential attack again? Is there anything to that that you've seen that that the anniversary itself presents um, you know some sort of inspired opportunity for pe- for for those who want to attack? I think both Al Qaeda and ISIS have been direct and specific about that. Not only on uh, on planning attacks for significant holidays, which they urge and call for. But even this week, um, in an ISIS uh, forum, they put out uh, a thing saying, you know, attack on September 11th and, um, and, and those calls. So there's always a heightened... I mean, it's hard when you live on high alert all the time. Right, that's, you know, that's sort of part of my... Right, that's, are, you, that's, are you ever on high alert? But uh, there are significant days, and we're about to go into our season. You know, it starts with 9-11, and then the New York City Marathon, and then the Thanksgiving Day Parade, and then the lighting of the Christmas tree, and then it peaks New at New Year's mm-hmm. Eve, and then we get a little break till maybe St. Patrick's Day. But, but, uh, but these are events that, you know, we have choreographed. Uh, the counterterrorism overlay is layered and complex for each one and changes every year. Uh, but that's why we devote that many people, this many resources, and that much um, angst and planning to all of them. Well, we will leave it there. John Miller, Deputy Commissioner of the NYPD for Intelligence and Counterterrorism, thanks so much for for taking the time with us. Well, thanks for having me again. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another exciting edition of Max and Murphy here on WBAI. We're on every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Thanks to our producer and engineer, Reggie Johnson. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News at 6. And until next week, have a great week in the greatest city in the world.